the nostalgia. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the Men Arts Podcast. I hope you all had a wonderful and fun New Year celebration, getting blackout drunk with your loved ones, and just feeling all kinds of happy. I got my drinks ready so I don't have dry throat again, and I have some apples to snack on. I spit in the face of people who don't want to be cool. I'm ready to get shit done today. Here we are, it is 2019, and we are kicking things off with the Attitude Era. What many wrestling fans believe to be the greatest era in wrestling history. But before I get into that, I just wanted to briefly touch on the announcement of what we all knew was coming and just needed confirmation of it, and that is that Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks have made it official that we are indeed going to see the debut of the All Elite Wrestling promotion, and we'll have the follow-up pay-per-view to All In called Double or Nothing in 2019. And I'm very excited to see what they're going to give us moving forward, and we will learn even more about what is to come from AEW on January 8th, and what I assume will be a press conference and I'll be sure to check that shit out when it happens and maybe try to give you guys a quick video sometime next week sharing my thoughts on the information presented there. Now, back to the main topic of today's podcast. I'm going to be remembering the many highs and the many lows, and trust me, there are many of them, of the Attitude Era, and will be sharing my real thoughts on all of it in a very raw and unscripted way that I feel is absolutely fitting, considering the topic of discussion. And also, I'm going to have several photos shown at random throughout the YouTube video version of this podcast, so it may not always match whatever specific person or moment or match that I'm talking about. Anyway... I hope you will enjoy this one. Now, let's get started. Or rather... Now, the Attitude Era, I believe, officially started in 1997, even though some fans like to credit the Austin 316 promo at the 1996 King of the Ring as being the foundation that laid down for the Attitude Era. And, well... There is some merit to that. Uh, I am on the belief that when Monday Night Raw became Raw is War in 1997 is when the Attitude Era officially began. And the Attitude Era went from 1997 to, I would say, maybe mid-2001. Uh, or maybe, a big maybe to early 2002, uh, because of course we know in 2002 is when WWF became the WWE, and that's when people considered that the Attitude Era was just officially, officially dead, though technically it died when WWF bought WCW, but anyways, um, you know, of course the Attitude Era was and I will, I will, I will agree. It was definitely the hottest period in professional wrestling. Uh, it's when you know most people that follow the history of the WWF in the '90s will remember that from '93 to like mid '96, WWF wasn't doing so hot. Especially '95. '95 was definitely one of their worst years ever. Like, if you look back at attendance numbers, they were at record lows, ratings were doing pretty bad, even though lately Monday Night Raw has been having some record low numbers as well. But in 1995, they were especially bad. Uh, yeah, low attendance numbers at house shows and pay-per-views and Monday Night Raws. Uh, 
low pay-per-view buy rates. Uh, merchandising revenue wasn't so great either. And, and also that's when they had a lot of the hokey gimmicks like Duke the Dumpster Drozzy and Mantar and uh, Bastion Booger uh, and a TL Hopper. Uh, Abe Knuckleball Schwartz was somewhere during that time period as well. Uh, what else? Uh, and Jean-Pierre Lafitte, who has made a career resurgence in the last couple of years as PCO. Uh, you know, good for him. He deserves that. Um, and yeah, just all kinds of hokey gimmicks and just, you know, people want to talk about how kid, super, you know, WWE today is so kid-friendly. 1995 was like the epitome of, car of cartoon WWF. Uh, people that complain about now, they must, they must have, they must have blocked 1995 out from their memory. And honestly, I don't blame them. Now, again, as I said, 1997 is what I consider to be the official beginning of the Attitude Era, and a lot of that can be credited to one of my favorite feuds in WWF WWE history, which was when Bret Hart turned heel at WrestleMania 13 and his awesome submission match with Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13 and launched the Canada and the rest of the world versus the United States storyline when he formed the Hart Foundation stable with himself, his brother Owen, British Bulldog, Jim Neidhart, and Brian Pillman. <sighs> Sorry, just taking a minute right now to just realize that, yeah, it's... And I met, touched on it a little bit on my Jim Neidhart video that I did back in August, but just yeah, out of those five men, out of those five men, Bret Hart is the only one who's alive right now, and it's just amazing to realize that. Anyways, um, yeah, uh, the Canada and and the world versus the United States was definitely one of my favorite rivalries in WWF history. Uh, but, you know, part of that might be because Bret Hart is my all-time favorite wrestler, so I tend to side with him a lot even when he's being kind of a bitter old man, for the most part. Which, I'll admit, he has been in the last couple of years, but that's not what this video is about. Um, although, some of his bitterness did come from a lot of stuff that happened during this time period. So, yeah. But, yeah, the heel Bret Hart anti-American Hart Foundation storyline is one of the one of the elements of the WWF during that time period that laid the groundwork for what would become the Attitude Era. And also 1997 is where we saw the creation of the Generation X, which started out originally as Shawn Michaels, Triple H, China, and Rick Rude. Because uh, Rick Rude is brought in as the quote insurance policy uh, for Shawn Michaels at the start of his feud with The Undertaker for 1997. And uh, and a lot of other great things that come out of 1997 was the, well, we, again, mentioning about Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin WrestleMania 13, that classic five-star WrestleMania match, and which helped launch Stone Cold Steve Austin into the stratosphere and helped lay down the groundwork of the career that he would go on to have with WWF slash WWE. And it's also unfortunately where he had the neck injury that kind of, well, not even kind of, that it definitely cut his career short. And it's like, a, it's like on one hand, yeah, it's hurt his career because it cut it short by a few years. But then at the same time, 
know, I'll compare it to when Becky Lynch got punched in the face by Nia Jax. That injury helped gain more sympathy for him and got the fans behind him even more. And he didn't have, he didn't wrestle at all from SummerSlam 97 until Survivor Series 97. But during that time period, he, he kept that momentum going with promos and the occasional stunner on the WWF authority figures of that time period. With the best and most famous one being when he stunned Stone once he gave a Stone Cold stunner to Vince McMahon for the first time at the Raw's War in Madison Square Garden, which is one of my favorite Monday Night Raw's slash Raw's Wars ever in his in the 25. Well, you know this year makes 26 years of Monday Night Raw. And speaking of that Raw, that is also where we got the WWF debut of the King of the Death match. Cactus Jack. Of course, before that, he, Mick Foley had come in as Mankind the year before uh, and had been riding on a great career high as Mankind for a year and a half up to that point and debuted the Dude Love character a few months before that, having been coming, becoming a tag team champion with Stone Cold Steve Austin during that period as well and uh, had his one of my favorite character debuts in WWE history when he fought Triple H in a street fight at Madison Square Garden. <clears throat> Which is kind of funny because he would go on to have an even better street fight with Triple H at Madison Square Garden again. Three years later, well, two and a half years later, at the Royal Rumble in 2000. <sighs> and while I'm talking about the Royal Rumble right now, that... WWF title match Triple H and Cactus Jack had at the Royal Rumble 2000. Out of all the great championship worlds, championship matches that the Royal Rumble has had, I honestly believe that that might be my absolute favorite because, I mean, I was 13 years old at the time when that Royal Rumble when that Royal Rumble pay per view happened, and it is even to this day of all they've had plenty of great Royal Rumble pay per view since then, but that one is still my favorite because. Oh, well, so many great moments to come out of that pay-per-view. One, again, the WWF title match, which is, again, my favorite Royal Rumble, non-Royal Rumble match, match of all time. And the awesome debut of Taz, even though his WWE career didn't go so well after that. Uh, the first ever tag team table match in WWF history with the Hardy Boys versus the Dudley Boys. Uh, the Miss Royal Rumble bikini contest where Mae Young... Uh, uh, well, just I'll just say go watch the WWE Network and you'll know that part about. Uh, and oh yeah, and the triple threat match with China and Chris Jericho and Hardcore Holly, which I feel is one of the is a very underrated match. Um, sorry, I'm gonna take a quick bite of my apple. Now, and while I'm on the subject of Hardcore Holly, I honestly feel like he was probably. A very, more more underrated than people give him credit for, especially during this time period where he was probably at his you know his hottest as a character because uh, he had had like several runs as a hardcore champion up to that point, and honestly, I he 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 was deserving of the Intercontinental title at that time. You know, obviously it didn't happen, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen because I, th I believe from when I listened to his interview on the Stone Cold podcast that he's retired right now. Which, if he is, good for him. And if he's not, hey, Royal Rumble's coming up. 
maybe have a surprise entrant as with Harko Holly. Who knows? <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> I keep I'm kind of jumping ahead, but you know, not gonna really be consistent. Again, I don't have a script for what I'm talking about on here, so you know, whatever. Anyways, yeah. And the other thing we had in 1997, going back to 1997, was the we had two other great debuts that came up that year. Uh, in October at the Bad Blood pay-per-view, which was one, the Hell in a Cell match, which would go on to have many iconic moments during the Attitude Era, and also in that same match, the debut of Kane. Now, of course, the match that I'm talking about was the Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels, the very first Hell in a Cell match, and it's one of my favorites still, even now, uh, um, 20 plus years later, and... And, well, honestly, it's like, it's, again, going back to favorite debuts, that's another favorite debut of mine. It's one of the best, and definitely for Glenn Jacobs, the, the human being, was definitely what he needed in his career. Because up to that point, he had been uh, the Unabom, Christmas Creature, and Isaac Yankum, and the fake Diesel. So, the day they they gave him the character of Kane was definitely like a godsend for him. To, uh, but um, and of course that's what that would also launch the feud of the Undertaker and Kane, where would build up for several months and they would have their finally have their highly anticipated one on one match at WrestleMania 14, and then they would go on to have the Inferno match that following month at Unforgiven, and they would have their other matches off and on throughout the rest of their WWE careers together. <clears throat> and uh, I have to say, I mean, not a lot of matches in, in today's WWE get the kind of build up that like that anymore, but that build-up for Kane versus Undertaker WrestleMania 14 is one of my favorites. It was built up first planting the seeds when Paul Bearer told Undertaker that his brother was still alive, and they built that up for three months. Kane makes his debut, and no matter what, he swears that he's, he will not fight him, and it keeps on going from October to November to December to January to February, then to March. And that's when he finally gets the match between Undertaker and Kane, because at the Royal Rumble, we had the WWF title casket match with Shawn Michaels and Undertaker, which this is the match that did have put Shawn Michaels on the shelf for four years. Uh, or at least it's credited for such. And, you know, everyone's th they've built it up where we think that Kane's going to side with the Undertaker, but then... Nope, he doesn't. He tombstones him and then chokeslams him into the casket, locks the casket door covers it up in gasoline and sets it on fire and we don't see Undertaker for two months and then he returns pro proclaiming that basically like you know fuck you little brother I'm gonna fuck you up at Wrestlemania <laughs> and I don't know how other people feel but to me that, that that Wrestlemania 14 match is their best match and I don't know how other people feel about it but that is definitely their best match and, I mean, the, the Inferno match they had the month after was pretty exciting as well. Uh, and it had, it had some great moments. Uh, but their WrestleMania 14 match is my favorite out of every match that they've had from the, in the WWF, WWE from 98 up to now. That's still, and always will be my favorite. 
Um, but while talking about WrestleMania 14, that is when Stone Cold Steve Austin had his first victory as the WWF champion. And as he put it on his uh, last WWE document DVD documentary, he says, you know, it wasn't a great match. It was what it was. But that is the match that launched him into the superstardom, super stratosphere, all that whatever the fuck words you want to use to call it, and made him the WWE superstar that he would become, cementing his name in WWE history, as as Vince McMahon called called him at the at his Hall of Fame induction, the greatest WWE superstar of all time. Personally, I say the Undertaker is the greatest superstar of all time for WWE, not the greatest wrestler, but the greatest superstar. Undertaker is my second favorite of all time. Stone Cold is my third favorite. Uh, just trying to think back of all, even the little moments that went on between during this period that meant so much. Uh, you know, of course, we had the Montreal screw job, but you know that's been talked to death. Um, and you know, the, the, one of the things you know, going back to Bahar being a bitter old man, as I said before, even though he is my favorite wrestler of all time, got to meet him twice, got his autograph three times from those two meetings, and I will cherish those autographs forever. And But, you know, it was during the Attitude Era that, you know, the women of the WWE, the WWF, uh, were, would become very sexualized in nature, and, you know, yes, you know, it was fun to look at, but in retrospect, it's like, and I understand they had to do it because, they did it because that's the, the audience they were trying to target, um, but... At the same time, it's like, that's the kind of shit that people used to love to point at when talking about how horrible the company is and how wrong they are and they're po poisoning the, the the minds of the, of the children and all that, all that, you know, PTA mom dribbly bullshit, whatever. <sighs> but, hey, got them, high, got them some of the highest ratings that they'd ever had. So, you know, from a business standpoint, hey. They they could do no wrong, <laughs> and this is when they were. This is this is when they started to see record, rate high ratings, record pay per view buy rates, record attendance numbers on house shows, record merchandise sales with the Austin three sixteen T shirt becoming the biggest selling T shirt in company history, and still is to this very day. Austin three sixteen T shirt is still the WWE's biggest selling piece of merchandise. And that's amazing that after 20 plus years, it is still the number one selling item out of all the items that they've ever sold. I think the NWO shirt is number two, but I'm not sure. But yeah, I know for sure the Austin 316 shirt is number one. And I did have that shirt twice. I had the original one in 1997, and then I had another one uh, 10 years ago that I bought a store in Manhattan that I can't remember the name, but they're, no, but they're closed now, so it doesn't matter. Um... But yeah, and it's biggest selling t wrestling t-shirt of all time, and I contributed to it twice, and I might do it again a third time, either purchasing at a Hot Topic if they if they, it's not sold out, or purchasing from WWE Shop. And and one of the other big selling t-shirts, going back to what the hell went on back, I didn't have this particular shirt. It was the original D Generation X two words suck it t-shirt with the classic gray DX logo. 
which was introduced in late 1997 when they had the Degeneration X in Your House pay-per-view in December of 1997, which, I mean, looking back, was not the best pay-per-view. But, you know, it was what it was. You know, and, you know, did a wa the watch-along for the Something to Wrestle With podcast for that pay-per-view. And, you know, kind of realized it's maybe it was like their their answer to when WCW did the NWO sold-out pay-per-view earlier that year. Which, I mean, it probably was, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure, you know, Triple H, Sean, Nash, Hall, and X-Pac, they didn't care because they all, they're all best friends, you know. They took over the wrestling business from that for that period, and they were proud of that. <laughs> but speaking of DX, uh, 1998 is when we got to see what, what would be my favorite version of D-Generation X, which was started the night after WrestleMania 14, when we saw the return of Shaw Waltman, now known as X-Pac, and the New Age Outlaws were added to the group, and it would go on to be one of the you know, best poof acts of the WWF in 1998 with the hilarious and awesome feud with the Nation of Domination uh, with the highlights, including the DX Nation skit, which even now, 20 plus years later, I still laugh my ass off at it. <laughs> I was, I think I was 11 years old at the time, and, and, and it's, I just I loved it so much and I still watch it now and I just it, it never disappoints me no matter how many times I watch it it never gets old I, um, you know like sometimes I'll say that nostalgia can be a bad thing but in this sense like that it's that's when nostalgia is good you know and then the DX versus nation feud to me the they would have great matches with each other they uh, X-Pac and Owen Hart would have a great match at the King of the Ring for 1998, which is funny because they had a match four years earlier at King of the Ring, and it started the same way. In 94, it was Owen Hart doing a baseball slide dropkick to a 1-2-3 kid at the time to start off the match, and this time it was X-Pac doing a baseball slide dropkick to Owen to start the match. And the victory was different both times. 94, Owen Hart won. He went on to win King of the Ring that year. In 98, X-Pac won. And, uh, of course, we had the great matches with Triple H and The Rock during that period. The first one being their 30-minute time limit uh, draw, 2 out of 3 falls match, which is, uh, I think, one of the most underrated 2 out of 3 falls matches. And then their ladder match at SummerSlam 1998, which is one of my favorite ladder matches of all time, and one of the most underrated ladder matches of all time. But going back to King of the Ring... And talking about Hell in a Cell, mentioning some of the great highlights that the Hell in a Cell matches had during the Attitude Era, had what would go on to become the highlight, the greatest highlight of the Hell in a Cell matches history, Undertaker versus Mankind, with the iconic fall, or not fall, being thrown off the top of the cage to the announce table below, and everyone thought that McFoley was dead. <laughs> of course he was not. He got up, went back up on top of the cell, and then Undertaker choke slams him right through the roof of the cell. And again, everyone thought he was dead after that. And then the thumbtacks introduced at the end of the match for the first time in WWF. 
and I don't know, I was rereading Mick Foley's first biography recently and just reliving, re reading some what how he described that, that match based on memory and what people told him about the match. It's just like, <sighs> um, Jim Ross said it best during that match. You know, that he's either crazy as hell or he's the toughest SLB that he's, I've ever seen. And I don't know, Mick, and Mick Foley's another one that he's one of my all-time favorites. And I got to meet him in 2007 when WrestleMania Fan Access came to South Street Seaport in Manhattan, uh, which was awesome. And I don't know, it's just how he's still alive. 20 years after that is just amazing to me. Because by all, by, seriously, by all accounts, those two falls could have and should have killed him. I mean, when you really think about it, he, he shouldn't, he shouldn't even, he shouldn't even be walking right now, let alone alive. And the fact that he, he still is, is just amazing. And, <clears throat> but here's the thing. As amazing as those two moments were, and then also with the thumbtacks, you take away those two falls off the gate, off the cell and through the cell, and you take away the thumbtacks, that Hell in a Cell match is only okay. S sorry to say that, but you take away those those three highlights, thrown off the cell, through the table, thrown through the cell, into the ring, thrown onto the thumbtacks, you take those three things out, and honestly the match is, not, is, is nothing. And that's just the facts. Anyone who wants to get mad at me for that, come and you know try to convince me otherwise. Because I've, I've watched it plenty of times, and other than those three moments, the match is only okay. And that's just the truth. Not everyone is going to agree with it, but that's how I see it. And there would be a few more Hell in a Cell matches throughout the Attitude Era. Some that were pretty forgotten, like there was the one on the Raw before the King of the Ring, which was going to be a tag team Hell in a Cell match with Undertaker and Austin versus Kane and Mankind, which went to a no contest. Um, which I don't even think they it, it ever started it officially, so it's technically wasn't even a match, it was just a brawl. And then Kane and Mankind had a Hell in a Cell match a few weeks after that when uh, the tag team of Kane and Mankind had their falling out during that period, and that's when Kane and Undertaker joined forces briefly before Kane went babyface, Undertaker went heel, and you know, was on the path to starting the Ministry of Darkness. Uh, but going back to King of the Ring, we also had the First Blood match, the first ever First Blood match in WWF with Kane and Stone Cold Steve Austin, which, you know, another one that I feel is actually a very underrated match. And I know a lot of people were upset because Kane only had the, the WWF title for one day, but that one day title reign is still going to be a highlight for his career that he's always going to look back and, you know, look at fondly. To me, it's it's one of those moments that, you know, and this is why I miss Howard Finkel being a ring announcer for the for the pay-per-views, especially for the big matches like this, that it's dead quiet. And you just hear that, that announcement, the winner of this contest, and new World Wrestling Federation champion. <sighs> it's just one of the perfect, one of the most perfect moments, you know. If you rewatch that that match particularly, and it's dead quiet, fans are just anticipating what what's gonna what's going on. And as soon as Hardfinkel says and new 
Austin's reaction is perfect. He just f flips the chair off, gets is all pissed off. Fans are booing the hell out of the and Vince McMahon pay-per-view fades to black with Vince McMahon smiling the biggest smile because he finally got the, the belt off of Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I think I might even watch the pay-per-view after I'm done recording this and that I'm thinking about it and just feeling nostalgic right now. So I'm going to go watch some of that great Attitude Era stuff after this. And, and more great highlights that we had during the Attitude Era. One of my favorite moments in the history of Monday Night Raw when Mankind won the WWF title against The Rock. The you know the ma the match that I guess people can credit as the being the final nail in the coffin for WCW because of on that same night the Nitro that same night is when Tony Schiavone instructed by Eric by Eric Bischoff uh, or told by Eric Bischoff's secretary. To, you know, like, oh, you know, Cactus is going to win the belt. He wants you to, to shit on it right now. He came up with the now famous, or now, I guess, infamous line, that'll put butts in the seats. And as soon as he said that, every fan watching Nitro switched over to Monday Night Raw to watch that. And, yeah, that is when WCW officially lost the Monday Night War. And now it's actually just watching that Raw a couple of weeks ago. And that's another moment that no matter how many times I watch it, it's just I love it. And and because Mick Foley is is one of my favorites, one of my favorite wrestlers and is honestly one of my heroes in my life because of how good of a human being he is. And just watching that moment, I I do admit being the fanboy that I am, I do get teary-eyed because it is a great moment that on, you know, if you again you read Mick Foley's first biography, uh, which is called "Mankind Have a Nice Day," "Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks." Basically, like he was never meant to be WWF champion or even in the WWF at all. Three years into his his time with the company, he is their champion, and it's it's it's, it's just awesome. Uh, you know, even though I watched it a few weeks ago, I might watch that else as well after this. <laughs> um, and me, yeah, so many. A lot of great matches and memories. Uh, and I talked about the Hell in a Cell with Undertaker and Mankind. First Hell in a Cell with Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. WrestleMania 14 when also won the title. Uh, DX versus The Nation. Uh, oh, Survivor Series 1998. One of the, my favorite Survivor Series pay-per-views. Where we had the tournament to crown a new WWF champion. Because at the Breakdown In Your House pay-per-view in September of that year, we had the triple threat match of Undertaker, Kane, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Where, at the end of the match, we didn't have a WWF champion. And then the following month at Judgment Day, we had Kane versus Undertaker with Stone Cold Steve Austin as the referee. And again, we didn't have a WWF champion after that. So they set up the tournament, which... When you, if you listen to the Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard podcast where they talked about Survivor Series 98, he described it as Vince Russo's finest creation during his time as a head writer for the WWF. And if you watch that pay-per-view, that the whole, like the build-up towards the pay-per-view and then the tournament itself was Vince Russo's greatest creation. While I'm on the subject of Vince Russo, I know it's easy for people to rip on Vince Russo because of WCW. But I'm not going to rip on him for WCW. Instead, I'm going to talk about how people seem to give him blind blind praise for 
the Attitude Era, as if he was the sole reason the Attitude, Attitude Era was so great. Which, yeah, he did have some creative ideas, but he also had some shit ideas that, you know, listen to something something to wrestle with podcasts, and they co- when they cover a lot of stuff that happened during the Attitude Era, you know, you'll, you'll hear what shit ideas were, were Vince Russo's and which great ideas were Vince Russo's. The WWE title tournament was Vince Russo's great idea. And a shit idea from Vince Russo, uh, Terry Runnels becoming pregnant and then having a miscarriage on Monday Night Raw. Now, I actually got, I actually did get into it with a couple of fanboys on a YouTube video. I think it was a What Culture Wrestling video that I, when they were talking about the you know, what they what was called the worst Monday Night Raw in history a few weeks ago. And I was saying that the way the shows have been lately, it feels like Vince Russo was secretly rehired to, re- to write the show. And then people are like, oh yeah, but he, he wrote the Attitude Era. Well, yeah, he wrote a lot of things in the Attitude Era. Some of it was good, some of it was great, some of it was shit. What they, what they fail to remember is that for every, no matter how, whenever, no matter what he was presenting to the, to, to the creative of WWF, still needed Vince McMahon's approval. And that's why when he went to WCW, you know, well, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it anyways. That's why so many of his shit ideas were so shit when he went to WCW, because he didn't have that Vince McMahon filter to tell him, fuck no. Yeah, I'll give him credit for his Virus Series 1998, but yeah, listen to the, some, the Bruce Pritchard Something to Wrestle With podcast. He'll find out all the shit ideas Vince Russo had during that period. <sighs> anyway, some of the other great highlights that I remember from the Attitude Era was the resurgence of the tag team division from 1998 to early 2001, highlighted by the teams of Etching Christian, the Hardy Boys, and ECW legends who came to the WWF in 1999, the Dudley Boys. And it all started when uh, they had, I guess you could say it was a best of five or best of seven with Edge and Christian versus the Hardy Boys that culminated in the first ever tag team ladder match at No Mercy in, in October of 1999. Um, then they had the tables match at the Royal Rumble, like I mentioned before. And then it all came together with the first ever triangle tag team ladder match at WrestleMania 2000, where we had the now legendary and often replayed Swanton Bomb from the 20-foot ladder from Jeff Hardy onto Bubba Ray Dudley on the table. And then we would go on to see the first TLC match at SummerSlam that year. And then the TLC 2 match at WrestleMania 17 with the even more iconic spear from the 20-foot ladder to Jeff Hardy hanging off of the belts in the middle of the ring. And, of course, all those matches were absolutely phenomenal. Damn near perfect. Uh, I mean, Bruce Prichard says that the... The latter match at WrestleMania, the, the TLC match at WrestleMania 17, or X7, whichever you prefer to call it, uh, was the greatest of that. And it was a great one, of course. But for me, I prefer their triple threat ladder match at WrestleMania 2000. Uh, I don't know why, just for me, that one is the one that stands out more, but that's just me. And, of course, we also had the other great feuds, uh, more great matches from The Rock and Triple H into the year, the year 2000. Their match at Backlash, uh, where, uh, was it Stone Cold Steve Austin? He was still out with the neck injury. He came in, did a couple of chair shot spots to help The Rock win. And then the Iron Man match at Judgment Day the following month with Shawn Michaels as the guest referee, where we got to see the debut of the American Badass Undertaker. Um, which... 
for whatever reason, what culture wrestling seems to have an issue with that one. I didn't mind it. I, I, I was cool with the American Badass Undertaker. Uh, in fact, some of my favorite Undertaker matches happened while he was American Badass. Uh, while talking about The Undertaker, The Ministry of Darkness Undertaker. That one had a lot of highs and lows during that little run. I mean, the highs were The Ministry of Darkness itself. Uh, some of the lows was the Hell in a Cell match he had with Big Boss Man, which was kind of a shit match. Even though his entrance music was cool. And the, when the brood came down from the, from, the, from the top of the arena, it was pretty awesome where they hung... Boss man from the Hell in a Cell with the noose. Then <laughs> uh, Brood was another great highlight of the Attitude Era, uh, which, when you really look at it, surprisingly did not last that long. Only was about, say, it was about six months, you know, if you really look at it. And which, you know, yeah, yeah, they, it only lasted about six months, so really, which is really surprising, you know, when you consider how how much fans loved it and look back on it like it's like it lasted for two years. No, it was less than one year. Uh, the theme song is still one of my favorites. It's one of those interest music then for me never gets old that I can listen to it on a constant loop over and over again and not be tired of it and then some of the lows of the attitude era because everyone likes to talk about the attitude era like it's perfect that they never did anything wrong <sighs> well yeah they did plenty of things wrong during the attitude era <laughs> some things off the top of my head um may young giving birth to a hand it was funny but not a, a highlight that I like to look back at fondly. Well, the Brawl for All, which a lot of the wrestlers in WWF and WWE, and especially those who participated in it, will tell you the Brawl for All was shit. Bart Gunn won. Went to WrestleMania 15. Had a match with Butterbean, and, well, you all remember how that turned out. And then we had the career-ending injury of Draws. I believe it was at its taping of SmackDown in October of '99, which that was a shame also because I was I was a fan of Draws. I thought he had the greatest potential. He could have been a great European champion. Could have been a great tag team champion with Prince Albert. Could have been even a great Intercontinental champion if they build him up well enough. But unfortunately, that's we're never gonna get to see that because of the career-ending injury that he had. Um, and of course, possibly the worst moment of the Attitude Era: the death of Owen Hart. Um, but I'm not. I'm not gonna talk about that. Going back to the highlights now. Uh, some of my other favorite moments of the Attitude Era: the debut of Chris Jericho on my list of top five. Debuts of all time in WWF WWE history, that has to be close to number one if it's not number one. You know, I never officially ranked them, but still, it was one of my favorite debuts ever in the company. And being a big Chris Jericho fan that I am, I've read all of his biographies, been a fan of his band Fozzy, been following Jericho's career since his early WCW days. And some of his ECW matches as well. Uh, and he has always been one of my favorites. Uh, and, you know, 
happy to see what he's been doing with New Japan over the last year. And anxious to see what he does in the future. But Chris Jericho's debut in the WWF in 1999, interrupting that promo with The Rock, was and still is one of the best debuts I've ever seen. I got to, it was me and my brothers in the living room. And we'd seen the countdown to the Millennium Clock every week up to that point. And then when it came on, because back then we didn't read the dirt sheet websites. So we didn't know, we actually didn't know it was Chris Jericho. But when the video started and then the word Jericho popped up on the screen, all three of us looked at each other like, holy shit. And we loved it. We were excited. And... And even now, looking back, is another moment that I can always look back on and remember where I ex exactly where I was when I first experienced it, and it just puts a smile on my face. And, and Jericho has had a lot of great moments during the Attitude Era as well. And he won the Intercontinental title in his feud with China, and had a great rivalry with Triple H in the year 2000 when they had that first match on Monday Night Raw. For the WWF title, uh, where it was reversed afterwards, because Earl Hebner did a fast count, Triple H forced him to reverse the decision and reward him with the WWF title. And then they had a great last man standing match, a fully loaded in your house that year. Uh, which, when you look at all the other great matches they had in their career, it's surprising that that was only their second match that they had. <laughs> but some of the other Great, for the year, let me look specifically at the year 2000. Some of the other great highlights that they had. Uh, I might be in the minority here, but Right to Censor. I actually loved Right to Censor because you know, it was it was, it was the perfect antagonist for the fans to hate. And immediately want to see you know, our favorites beat the shit out of them. <laughs> and the theme music was so annoying that it's like, again... You just couldn't wait for somebody to come out and just beat their asses and send us home happy. <laughs> and the other great highlights of the year 2000, um, we got to see the debut of the Radicals of the coming into the WWF, which was, of course, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko. And, of course, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit are no longer with us. Perry Saturn has... Been having a lot of issues over the last decade or so and Dean Malenko is ha living his happy life as a agent for the WWE right now and, and it's just amazing that because they came so so late in their careers that they came to the WWF and it's just like imagine how it would have been if they had come sooner you know like Chris Benoit and as soon as he sh he showed up he was already main event level Know, had great matches with Chris Jericho, especially. Uh, at Backlash that year, Judgment Day, two out of three falls match that they had at SummerSlam, and the ladder match that they had at the Royal Rumble 2001. Uh, another one of my favorite ladder matches, and another one that I feel is very underrated. Um, Eddie Guerrero, of course, he would have his greatest moments later on in his WWE career, uh, but he had some good highlights in the year 2000 as well, with his pairing with... China, you know, where the Latino heat mamacita thing started. <sighs> I sure do miss both of them. And let me talk a little bit about the year, the year of 1999. And, and 
And, you know, I did mention before about, you know, that 1999 at the Over the Edge pay-per-view, Owen Hart had passed away, and... And honestly, during that period, actually, there was a brief <clears throat> time when I actually stopped watching WWE. I don't know, just like for a couple weeks, it just felt weird for me because of the own heart thing. And it wasn't even like I did it like, you know, like, oh, I'm never going to watch WWE ever again. It was just, it just happened. And it's like I wasn't even really aware of it, you know? I still kept up with it, it's just didn't pay much attention to watching it live on live every week like I did before. Um, like I said, like a lot of fans, they like to look at the Attitude Era like it's perfect, absolute perfection, that they could do no wrong, and I already mentioned that they did a couple of things wrong. Uh, you know, like I know there's a lot of male fans now that... Wishes that they would go back to having the women like they were back then, which I mean, if you wanna if you wanna relive that, just watch it on WWE Network, because the way the women are now in WWE is they're the best that they've ever been, and they are exactly where they should be, and they are being treated the way they should be. Yeah, some of them are still you know a little sexualized, but that's because it's pertinent to their character, uh, like Mandy Rose. She's supposed to be the, you know, the, the hot one, basically, and, whew. but anyways, it, I don't want to go, I don't want to go back to the bra and panties era, days of the women's wrestling, because we want to move forward, we want to evolve, we don't want to devolve, we don't want to regress to that, or at least I don't, I mean, because really, how, for how many years were wrestling fans complaining that the great women's wrestlers are being used for in all the wrong ways, and now we have some fans wishing that it would go back to that. I mean, those fans can just fuck off, in my opinion. <sighs> but, one great thing that did happen with the women in the Attitude Era, that it gave us China, and it also gave us Trish Stratus and Lita. So, thank, thank you to the Attitude Era for that. <laughs> and also, the Attitude Era gave us the Stephanie McMahon character that would go on to be one of the most hated women in the history of WWE. And it's just, it's so easy to hate her that no matter what she does, she's always going to be the villain in the eyes of the fans. And I think she's okay with that, you know? You know, because she, she, when she goes home and, puts, and she lies, goes to bed at night, she has her husband, Triple H, and she has her three daughters who, lo who think the world of her. So, she doesn't need the fans' approval. Because she already has it at home. So, but, and with the, again, with the fans. And when talking about the quality of the WWE product today, a lot of fans just, their solution is always, go back to the TV, TV 14 Attitude Era. Yeah, it's easy to say that, but they were not a publicly traded, they weren't a public company back then during the Attitude Era. But now they are a public, a publicly traded company on the stock market, and they have sponsors and financial backers that they need to answer to. They have a board of directors to answer to. If they regressed back to the Attitude Era ways, they would lose a lot of those sponsors. And if you're willing to have WWE lose money because you want to satisfy your your nostalgia for the Attitude Era, then you're just the, to me you're the wrong kind of fan. That you're willing to let them 
let the company hurt financially just to satisfy your Attitude Era nostalgia. <laughs> well, you know what? If being TV-14 is what is all it's, it's all it takes for WWE to be a better product, then how do you explain you know TNA Impact Wrestling being a shit off and on for 16 years? They've been TV-14 since the beginning, and they haven't exactly been the most successful. They've they've barely survived. I'll give them that. They've survived somehow. You know, because if you want to say going to TV-14 is automatically going to make it better, when WWE, like in the late 80s to early 90s, when they when people you know what they would call the golden age of WWF, they were TVPG. I don't remember anyone complaining about that, and even now people don't complain about it back from back then. But then again, that's also because people are looking at it with their nostalgia glasses uh, instead of looking at it realistically. A TV PG rating does not mean shit. TV 14 does not mean shit. Because if you look at the quote PG era of the WWE since 2008 to now, <clears throat> I'm going to list off a few of the you know great matches that we have be during the PG era. Uh, let's see, uh, Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels versus May 25, CM Punk versus John Cena, Money in the Bank, uh, <clears throat> Triple H and Undertaker versus Mania 28, uh, Daniel Bryan versus Brock Lesnar, sorry, since 2018, AJ Styles versus John Cena at SummerSlam at 2016 and Royal Rumble 2017, uh, Seth Rollins versus anybody, Edge versus Undertaker, Helena Cell at SummerSlam. That was during. That was a PG pay per view. SummerSlam was the first PG pay per view for WWE for, of this new era, and it was made evented by Edge and Undertaker Hell in a Cell. It was a great match, and again Triple H and Undertaker Hell in a Cell to WrestleMania 28. Great match. Shawn Michaels and Undertaker WrestleMania 25 and WrestleMania 26. Two great matches. PG era. Jeff Hardy CM Punk feud of 2009. PG era. Great matches. Chris Jericho and Rey Mysterio. From 2009, especially their match at the at the the bash that year, was one of the matches of the year. PG era WWE. PG is what's hurting WWE. Meanwhile, we've had all these great matches with Seth Rollins, AJ Styles, Daniel Bryan, John Cena, CM Punk, Jeff Hardy, Undertaker, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Chris Jericho. Here, here's another thing regarding the PG, TV PG. NXT is TV PG, but I never hear anyone complaining about. PG hurting NXT. You know why? Because the TV rating has shit to do with it. It is about the creative process. Creative is the only thing that's holding holding back the WWE product right now. PG rating doesn't mean shit. Because, again, the Attitude Era was not perfect. They were TV 14 throughout, but they were not perfect. Mayon giving birth to a hand. Do you really think that that's that's perfect highlight of that era? All the wrestlers that their careers were cut short because of the stuff they did during the Attitude Era. Again, if you take off your nostalgic glasses and really look at some of the stuff that happened, like how many genuine, how many classic wrestling matches happened in the Attitude Era? Not a lot of them, because you look at the best matches that happened in the Attitude Era, they were gimmick matches for the most part. Greatest matches of the Attitude Era. Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, WrestleMania 15 and WrestleMania 17. No DQ matches. The Triangle Ladder Match with WrestleMania 2000, TLC, SummerSlam 2000, TLC 2, WrestleMania 17. Uh, Undertaker and Mankind, Hell in a Cell, King of the Ring. Triple H and The Rock at SummerSlam 98 Ladder Match. Judgment Day 2000, Iron Man Match. Triple Threat Match, Triple H, Stone Cold, and Mankind at SummerSlam 99 with Jesse Ventura's guest referee. It was a no, it's no DQ. 
uh, The Rock and Mankind, I Quit Match, Royal Rumble, Last Man Standing, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Stone Cold and, the, and McMahon, Cage Match, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Casket Match, Royal Rumble 98, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, uh, The Street Fight with Triple H and Cactus Jack, Hell in a Cell with Triple H and Cactus Jack, Ladder Match with Chris Jericho and Chris Benoit, again, when you look at all the greatest matches of the Attitude Era, not all of them were just straight up wrestling matches, but in the PG era, we've had a lot of great straight up wrestling matches, but, you know, PG is the problem. <laughs> Alright, guys, that is it for the first podcast of the new year. I'm excited to experience all this crazy shit that will come over the next 12 months with you guys, and I'll do my best to keep the fun content coming. And I hope you enjoyed this particular podcast. Uh, again, I didn't have a script. I was winging it for the most part. And just, you know, going on the fly, as they say. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed it anyways. Now, next week, I'll be presenting part 9 of my Snyder Cut series. Where I'll be discussing my thoughts and feelings on the hate for Zack Snyder. And the following week, uh, I will have, as requested by... My friend Spaz Phoenix, uh, a recasting of the MCU and the DCEU using current WWE superstars. And the week after that, I'll have my predictions for WWE's 32nd annual Royal Rumble event, which starts us on the road to WrestleMania 35, so that should be a fun one. And as always, feel free to tweet me at IamFazitude if you have any suggestions or if you have any questions for me. And I'll take all suggestions into serious consideration and I will answer all questions on future podcasts. And again, thank you all so much for watching and listening. I'll see you next time.